Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day together. We thank you so much that we can gather together in freedom and learn more of your word, learn more of who you are. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to think well upon the choice between living for the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ, that we would remember where our promises are. It's not in this world. Our promises are with you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would think well upon the biblical text now. In Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, move into Revelation chapter 6, notice I titled the message, The Coming of Antichrist and His Forces. I just want to let you know that we'll be returning to the subject of the Antichrist and how he comes about in Revelation chapter 13 in greater detail. But my concern here this morning is to really look at how Antichrist comes with a coalition initially. And we're going to see that as we get into Revelation chapter 6, This is now the outbreaking of the wrath of God. And so this is what is imminent and at hand for the world today. In fact, I want to show you as we begin into Revelation chapter 6 that the first four seals that we're going to be focusing on, remember there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Well, the first four seals are opened in the first eight verses of chapter 6. Okay, so what I want to do is kind of show you a summary because this is what Jesus referred to as the beginning of birth pangs. Now, as we open up to Revelation chapter 6, there's a correlation and perhaps a parallel between what John sees and what Zechariah saw. So, for example, John saw four horsemen. And I think that by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is inspiring him in such a way where he's seeing the same thing that the prophet Zechariah saw. So if you go back to Zechariah chapter 1, in Zechariah chapter 6, that prophet also saw these four horsemen, and they end up being charioteers, but there's four horses. And so there's an obvious parallel. So what I want to show you is what I think the connections are. Why does the Holy Spirit want us to see the connection between the book of Zechariah and what John is seeing? So let's lay the parallel out. First of all, I'm claiming here that, again, John sees these four horsemen. And these are the four horsemen that unload or bring about the first four sealed judgments, okay? Now, the four horsemen, what I'm going to show you is that they are really personifications of a larger movement. Now, because I know it's been a while since we've all been in English grammar and done all those things, what is a personification? Well, that's where we attribute human-like attributes to something that is inanimate, okay? Let me give you an example. If I say, my car, she's really running well, Am I really claiming that my car is female? Well, no, I'm making a personification of my car. In the same way, these horsemen are really grand movements, both political and religious, that are being brought to bear upon the planet as a form of God's judgment. Okay? So, and we'll we'll unpack that. It'll be more clear what that means. Now, in Zechariah's day, the four horsemen were personifications of spirit beings. Now, initially, that may seem like a contrast. One is a personification of these worldwide movements. In Zechariah's day, it was a personification specifically of these spiritual beings, but they're really synonymous. Now, here's why. Remember, in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul says that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with what? Exactly, principalities and powers with the spiritual realm, right? So behind these worldwide movements that are going to bring about the Antichrist, the angelic being is in fact being used. It's a spiritual battle, okay? 
Now, the second parallel I want you to see is that the four horsemen bring wrath in Revelation chapter 6. That's what we're going to be proving. What's interesting, in Zechariah's day, the four horsemen were merely on patrol. Now, that again seems like a slight contrast, but again, I want you to see that they're synonymous. Now, here's why. In Zechariah's day, remember when he's writing, he's writing around 520 B.C. And Babylon, which held the Israelites into captivity, what year were they sacked by the Medo-Persians? Well, 539. So what's interesting is Zechariah sees these angelic beings go out, these horsemen. They are merely patrolling and verifying that God's wrath did indeed come upon Babylon. Does that make sense? So Babylon in Zechariah's day that oppressed the people of God was smashed. And these four horsemen are verifying that, showing us that, yes, God is in control. Well, the parallel that I, that I see is here, where in Revelation chapter 6, when we get to the very end of the book, after all the wrath has been poured out, Babylon will be vanquished. When Antichrist comes about, what does he bring? He brings Babylon. Babylon represents a political and religious revolt against Yahweh. And so what we're going to see is a contrast between two cities. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ is going to be bringing the new Jerusalem all by his grace and power alone for those who believe, whereas Antichrist is going to bring Babylon, Babylon by human works and through the work and activity of the beast. All right, so that's the great contrast that we are to see, the two cities But at the end of the day, we're assured that Babylon is going to be destroyed. And so I think that that's the parallel. Now, one other item I want to hit on as we get in, because remember, we're only going to cover two verses today in Revelation 6, but we want to really study the first eight verses of chapter 6 together of Revelation because they're the first four seals and they go together, the four horsemen. I want to show you the parallel also between what Jesus taught some 65 years earlier prior to John writing this. He taught the same thing. So I want you to see the connection between Jesus' Olivet Discourse and what's being taught here in Revelation 6. Now, why is this important, by the way? Well, remember, I had proven in my messages in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 that as Jesus is teaching, he's teaching about the 70th week of Daniel. He's not talking about things that are occurring now. He's talking about events that occur within the last seven years that Daniel had alluded to in Daniel 9.27. Now, why that's important when we study Revelation is we open up Revelation 6, we see that it's covering the same material. Therefore, Revelation 6 is not occurring now, but must be referring to something that is in the future. And that's very important because some interpret Revelation saying, well, it's just events that are happening here and now. That's not true. Yeah, Brian. I hear a lot of... uh, people speaking on the end times and you'll always hear them say, Oh, something happened over here or over there. And those are just a sign of those are just birth pangs. But from what we're learning, those are not that that's not till later. And and these people are confusing that Olivet discourse and confusing those verses. And that's why they have it wrong. Exactly. Brian. And that's exactly what I'm trying to alleviate. Right. Very good. In fact, let's look at the parallel here. You'll see this, how clearly these are parallel. Look at here, Matthew 24, verses 4 through 5, and Mark 13, 6. Jesus had warned in his Olivet Discourse 
a false Christ. Many would come in his name. And we're going to unpack how it is many and not just one here this morning. But notice the parallel in Revelation 6. Again, this is written 65 years later by John. He sees a rider on a white horse. Okay, so again, we have a parallel with the Antichrist and the accomplices. Okay, that's what the white horse is going to represent. So notice I claim it's Antichrist and accomplices. What I mean by that is Antichrist is going to initially come forth with a coalition. And hence, then you get the idea of not just one, but the many false Christs. Okay, and I'll lay that out. So you'll see a direct parallel between Jesus' warning of the many false Christs and the many that come about in the opening salvo of the 70th week of Daniel. Now, let's go back to the Olivet Discourse. Notice he warns of wars and rumors of wars. Well, sure enough, that's what we see at the second seal. Peace is taken from the earth in Revelation 6, 3 through 4, due to warfare. So you can see the parallel nature of that. Third, Jesus warned of famines. And sure enough, that's the third seal that we have in verses 5 through 6 of Revelation chapter 6. And so you can see that parallel. Well, then Jesus warns that these are all the beginning of birth pangs. Now, remember that term birth pangs in Greek is the term odin. And I had mentioned that that's a technical term that was used in the Septuagint of Isaiah 13.8 when God had revealed that there would be birth pangs that would one day come upon the whole world to judge those who are unbelievers. And so this birth pangs idea is synonymous with the day of the Lord judgment. So the idea is that they had, I think, the biblical writers, was if you can imagine now we're in pregnancy, but pregnancy isn't the time of birth pangs. When do the birth pangs come? You don't know. Okay, let me give you an example. My own life, we were pregnant with my little boy. My wife was. I say we. I wasn't doing I, My wife did all the hard work, I admit. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. All you women are not, no longer going to stone me now. So, I, uh, I remember we were watching Bill Cosby. <laughs> We were watching Bill Cosby, and one day, just out of the blue, we're sitting there, and her water breaks. And I thought, well, you have to put that back in, because he's not due for another five weeks, but that's impossible, I realized. So I was getting water. I was going to try to pour more back in as the water was coming out, but that's impossible. So the point is, her birth pain started, and it was, there was no warning behind it. Yeah, it was imminent. It was at hand then, the birth. So the idea then is we're living during the stage of pregnancy, And one day, the water will break, as it were, imminently. We don't know when. And what's birthed after the birth pangs is the Messianic Age. The Messianic Age, where there'll be no more war. There'll be only belief on the planet and glorifying of Yahweh. And he'll reign in his holy mountain. The swords will be beat into plowshares. The wolf will dwell with the the sheep and the lion with the lamb. And they shall not kill any more on God's holy mountain. That's going to come. But that's what's going to be birthed through these birth pangs. So that's the imagery. So when we look in Revelation chapter 6, sure enough, we have a summary at the fourth seal. And the summary really combines all that God has poured out in his wrath. There's going to be four items, sword, pestilence, famine, and wild beast. The very four objects of his wrath that were poured upon Judah in Ezekiel 14, 21. Now, why is that important? Because if it was the wrath of God in the Old Testament... Why would anyone argue that it's not the wrath of God being poured out in the New Testament? Of course, I think it's special pleading to claim that this is not the wrath of God. So I want everyone to see, therefore, the parallel between the Olivet Discourse 
in Revelation 6. So if the Olivet Discourse is talking about the 70th week of Daniel, and we proved that it was, because remember when you get to the midpoint, he's obviously talking about the abomination of desolation. That's in the 70th week. Therefore, we can prove that Revelation 6 is talking about that same time period. It's in the future. It's not occurring in history now. Okay? All right. Now, with that set then, let's move on to Revelation. We're just going to cover the first two verses. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Now, before we open this up, remember, where did we come from? We came from chapters 4 and 5, which are the throne room, or, the, or is the throne room. So what we're going to see then is that all these things that come upon the world have as their source the throne. So all of them come from Jesus. He's the one who is on the throne with the Father, and therefore he's the one who ultimately is pouring all of this out. So don't let anyone deceive you in saying, well, these are just things that men do, but God certainly isn't involved in this. No, he is involved. It all stems from the throne. Okay, Revelation 6, 1 through 2. John writes, he says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, the first thing I want you to see here in these opening verses, especially in verse 1, I'm going to try to scroll here, find my cursor, sorry is I want you to notice that these four living creatures are active in implementing God's wrath. Now, these are the four living creatures that were angels in Zechariah chapter 6. So God uses these four living beings, these angels, to dispense his wrath as he opens the seals. All right. Now, I also want you to see that notice in verse 1, it talks about this thunder. There's a voice of thunder. Now, that term is used in the Septuagint of Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. And so remember, as God revealed himself at Mount Sinai, you had this voice of thunder, and the people were fearful of their very lives. Well, now we have a similar illusion. There's a voice of thunder. Yes, it's an angel, but it comes from God. And so again, people should be afraid for their lives. He's going to be pouring out his wrath here. Now, I also want you to see that there's an invitation in verse 1. Notice the invitation is an imperative form of erkamai. So it's an imperative, come. But the question we have to wrestle with is who is being invited to come? There's been three different takes on this. First, some people have thought, well, Jesus is being invited to come. Now, certainly Jesus will come, and it's imminent. But remember, he's the one who's revealing these things. And it doesn't really fit with the context. The second view is that it's John the Apostle that's being invited to come, that is to see all these things. But that doesn't fit with the context because notice after the invitation, behold, a white horse comes. So the invitation is for this judgment to come. And again, this white horse, we're going to be wrestling with the identity of it. But that's who the invitation is extended to, is this white horse and the rider who sits on it. So if you can think about it, Jesus opens the seals, The angels are dispensed, this living creature, one of the four elite, and then he beckons this judgment to come. But it all comes from the throne room of God. All right? Now, the one thing we want to wrestle with here is who is the identity of the white horse? Now, the different views over the ages, one is the historist. Now, remember, what do historists believe? 
they believe all of the events within Revelation occurred during the church age. Now, the reformers would have held to this. Well, they see that the white horse represents the Parthian invaders that affected Rome from 66 B.C. to 217 A.D. Now, what do we just prove, though, by seeing the correlation between the Olivet Discourse and Revelation 6? Well, these things have not, not yet happened exactly. So we can right away eliminate the historist understanding. By the way, none of these things correspond to things that have happened in history. And we'll be proving that as well. Yeah, Peter. Just for the record, can you uh, describe the church age just so we have that yeah. clear on the recording? Yeah, thank you. That, let's just say the church age for our definition is from the time that Jesus Christ ascends into the heavens to the time that he returns bodily. So think of the bodily ascent and the bodily descent of Christ. In between is the church age. Okay, so the reformers would hold to the fact that the majority of revelation was occurring within the age now. What we're saying is no, the better data is we have this age that's imminently going to come, which is the 70th week of Daniel. And that, of course, comes after Jesus returns bodily to rapture the church. Yep, very good. Very good question. Thank you. Yeah, so that's one view. The other view, um, the idealists. The idealists are ones who don't take, I think, Revelation very seriously as a literal prophecy. They would see the white horse as representing the spread of the gospel. But the better reading, and there's, by the way, there's some who think that the white horse represents Christ. Now, why do they think that? Well, let me show you. Notice the parallel between this and Revelation 19.11. Revelation 19.11 is where Jesus returns after all the wrath has been poured. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. So you see this obvious connection between the white horse. However, notice in Revelation 19.11, John is very careful to describe the rider of the white horse. Well, he who sat on it is called faithful and true. So you know that's Jesus. Now, do we have any indication that the one who sits on this white horse is faithful and true? No. In fact, more than likely, this is the imposter that Daniel had warned about the one who comes in his name. Remember, Jesus warned, you don't receive me, but you'll receive another who comes in my name because there isn't blessing for the people of God, but rather just wrath poured out at this point. Now, we have to wrestle a little bit with what does white symbolize? Well, in the book of Revelation, white symbolizes holiness and righteousness. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, what does holiness and righteousness have to do if this is the Antichrist? What does it have to do with him? Well, he's an imposter. He doesn't really have it, but the world thinks he does. That's the idea. And so this is an imposter. But I want you to think more specifically that this rider on this white horse isn't just one man, but it's really a movement. It's the rebellion that leads to Antichrist. In other words, it's not just the Antichrist alone, but it's those that are in cahoots, as it were, with him. It's this coalition. And so therefore, it's not just one man that's being envisioned here. Now, I'm going to give you evidence of that in just a moment. But I want you to turn your attention to this idea that he's been given a bow. Right? Do you see that bow that he's given? Now, a bow obviously symbolizes warfare. The term toxon is used of a bow that the archers would use in those days. But notice what's conspicuously absent from the bow are the arrows. And so there seems to be this threat of warfare, but it's never actualized. He's able to go and take and conquer without warfare at all. 
And that's exactly what we see described in Daniel 9.27. Remember, he makes a covenant with the many for one week. And you don't get the idea that there's warfare. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, we'll read that in a minute, there's a rebellion. And the rebellion isn't caused by warfare, but the idea that the world willingly goes along with him. So I think that what we have here is this Antichrist figure comes along and he dupes the world into thinking that he's not so bad. And they willingly give him their allegiance. In fact, also notice that it was a crown was given to him. Now this crown is a symbol of kingly dignity. And so he appears to be this king who's benevolent to those who are underneath him. But in reality, he's evil. He's an imposter. But I want you to see who has given him all this power. Notice the term was given. That's very important. It's a passive form of the verb didomi. Now let's all remember, when we're talking about active voice verbs versus passive voice, if I say actively, I hit the ball, that's active voice, right? I hit. I'm the subject and I'm doing something. I'm hitting. But if I'm hit or being hit, that's passive. And so there's some outside agent, therefore, that's hitting me. Well, notice here that this white horse, the rider on it, he doesn't give himself the bow and the crown, but it was given to him. So what that invites us then to ask is, well, who's the agent that's doing the giving? And who would you suspect, being that all this stems from the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4 and 5? Well, God is the one who gives it to him. Wow. So all of a sudden now we see that God is in control of even this Antichrist. He's the one who's in control of all these things that are being poured out. In fact, all the way through the book of Revelation, a passive form of didomi is shown by God to demonstrate that those who are doing wicked things are given the authority by God. He's in control, but it's only temporary. In fact, let's turn your Bibles. I'm going to show you some examples of this. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 9.3. Revelation 9.3. As you turn to Revelation 9.3, the context here is that you have demonic beings that are going to be given power. These are the demonic beings that Bob has been warning about in Colossians, the Stoichia. And in particular, these demonic beings are those that had left their proper abode and had gone after women in Genesis chapter 6. Why do we know that? Because in the book of Jude, it says they were locked away in the abyss. So in Revelation 9, because the world wants to be in contact with these demonic beings, God gives them their desire. And so these demonic beings are allowed out of the abyss. And notice who is ultimately in control of it. Revelation 9.3, it says, Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them. There's the passive form of didomi, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, all those descriptors are really referring to demonic beings. And notice that they were given this kind of power. Now, who gave it to them? Well, God does, okay, because he is sovereign and he is in control. Let me show you another example. Turn ahead to Revelation 13, 5. Here you'll see that the Antichrist is also given his authority and his power there. In fact, you'll see the passive form of didomi used twice in this one verse emphasizing that fact. Revelation 13, 5. It says, There was given to him, again, that's the beast, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 
So notice in the beginning, there was given to him. And at the end of the sentence, there was given to him. Well, who gave it to him? Well, God did. And so this, again, proves that God is on, in control, even though there's these evil things being perpetrated. Even though it's Antichrist, God is ultimately the one who's still on the throne. All right? So to summarize then, I think that the identity of this white horse is not just Antichrist, but it's his coalition with him. All right? And I want to lay that out for you. I want to prove that that is indeed the case. And in order to do so, what we're going to do is I'm going to show you some evidence that he comes about with a many, meaning more than just one, with a coalition in Revelation 17. All right. Now, as we're turning to Revelation 17, the discussion here is about Babylon. And Babylon represents not just a religious movement, but also a political movement. It really represents a political and religious revolt against God. Now, is it a literal city? Yes, it's going to be a literal city. But it also represents those things. So Babylon is brought about by Antichrist and the false prophet. But the focus here in Revelation 17 is how did this Antichrist get all of his power? And so it goes on to say in verses 9 through 13, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now let's stop there. The woman is the harlot. That's Babylon. Okay, the the prostitute who's bringing the world into idolatry against God. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Again, the reformers, because they were historists and they believed that the book of Revelation was being fulfilled during the church age. And I'm glad Peter asked me, remember the church age is between the ascent of Christ and the descent of Christ. Well, the reformers thought that because the book of Revelation is discussing things that are occurring now, that the seven mountains or hills were the seven mountains of Rome. Rome sits on seven hills. And so then what they suspected then was obviously that the beast was, in fact, the pope. Okay? But notice the problem with that interpretation. Are they not just reading their own current events into the text? I think they are because notice the Bible describes what these seven mountains represent. They're actually seven kings. Okay, so they're not literally seven hills. The seven hills represent seven kings. Now, we also have to realize that a king is no good without a kingdom. So I think you can say that the kings and the kingdoms are synonymous. Okay, but that's what they represent. They're not literally the hills of Rome. So we can jettison the historist interpretation and say that definitely this is not referring to the specific city of Rome. Okay, is that clear? All right, so with that, notice it says that they are seven kings, but it also says five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Well, these kings are, of course, kings over kingdoms, and these seven kingdoms are those that affected the people of God throughout history. And so what kingdoms were they? Well, if you look at seven of them, you had Egypt that God called his people out of, you had Assyria, you had Babylon, you had the Greeks, you had the Romans, right? Uh, did I miss any? Did I get the Medo-Persians? We got that one in there? Well, the last one is Rome. Okay, so let me just read them in order. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. There are six. But notice he's talking about seven. Well, there's going to be a revived Roman Empire, which the Antichrist comes from, and that's the seventh. And so I think clearly that's what's being referred to here. Because notice he says, at the time John wrote this, five have fallen. Well, which, one had, which ones had fallen? Well, it was Egypt. We had Assyria. 
We had Babylon. We had the Medo-Persians. And we had, what else? We had the Greeks. Those five fell, right? And so which one was on the scene in John's day? Well, it was Rome. Okay, so that corresponds very nicely to what he's talking about. Now, I want you to see that there's a parallel to this in the book of Daniel. So Daniel's teaching the very same thing that John was, or maybe another way of saying it is John's teaching the same thing that Daniel was. In fact, turn your Bibles back to Daniel 7, 23 through 25. I want you to see that this is a very consistent hermeneutic. We're reading both passages the same. Daniel 7, 23 through 25. Now, in Daniel's day, remember Belshazzar here in Daniel 7, he's given a vision. Well, Daniel's the one who's given the interpretation of it because he's the prophet of God. As Daniel's speaking here, you didn't have the kingdom of Rome yet, right? So as Daniel's going to be doing his uh, interpretation, he's going to be focusing on four kingdoms, all right? And he's not going to mention Egypt, for example, or Assyria because they were already gone. So he's going to focus on the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians. He's going to be focusing on the Greeks and the Romans, those four, all right? So notice here in Daniel 7, 23 through 25, Daniel says, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So that would be Rome, which will be different from the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. Now he will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. They will be given to his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, at the end, that's three and a half years. Now, sure enough, notice the reference here to the fact that we have ten horns. Now, those ten horns are these kings that are given authority by God with the Antichrist for an hour. In fact, notice it says right in the text, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Does everyone see that? So it's synonymous back to Daniel 7. So the point being is that What John is revealing is that there's going to be these seven kingdoms. And the seventh kingdom ends up being this Antichrist. And it has a coalition of these ten other kingdoms that are with him. Now, why is that important? Well, what it means is when Antichrist initially comes on the scene, he's not alone. And therefore, the white horse, the rider on it, isn't just one man. It really is a personification of a larger movement. Now, why am I laboring all of these points? Well, because I think it helps us explain then why in Matthew 24... When Jesus says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. See, it's not just one initially, it's the coalition. The ten kings are with the Antichrist. And so you have an Antichrist movement. Now, the Antichrist ends up subduing three of those kings and ends up showing himself to be superior. In fact, he has a pseudo-resurrection, and at that point, the whole world worships him alone. But initially, you have many false Christs that come about in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And so when Jesus says, for many will come into my name, you and I don't have to say, well, that's happening during the church age. Certainly there are many false Christs now. But remember, Jesus' focus in both Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 is not during the church age, but he's referring to specifically 
events that occur within the 70th week of Daniel. And so the many that come in Christ's name are this coalition that's summarized by the rider and the white horse. And the evidence of that, again, Revelation 17, this Antichrist doesn't come alone. These ten kings are in allegiance with him. All right, is that clear? Anybody have any comments, questions, concerns? Yeah, Dan. Do you think it's um, sometimes a waste of time to conjecture who the Antichrist will be for believers that are awaiting the imminent return of Christ for the church? Do you think it's that's something? Yeah, the conjecture, I don't really find much profit in it. Um, I don't know who it is, but I think we're to teach what the scriptures teach to say, look, when it's mentioned, I think we're to say um, there's this movement. We're to teach what the Bible teaches and no more, not to go beyond revelation. Yeah. And the other thing is... um, for, for Babylon, I, I hear some prophecy teachers say that Babylon is, you know, they're, they're looking in uh, Iraq and seeing that Babylon is starting to be rebuilt. Sure. Is there any credence to that, that 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 would actually be a rebuilt Babylon? Um, yeah. When it, you know, it's supposed to be the center of the world commerce, and right now there's nothing, you know, it's not even not even a city that's built. So is that yeah. a... I, I, do, I do think it'll literally be rebuilt during that yeah. time period. And okay. the evidence that I would suggest for, for that is in Revelation 16, you have a reference to the Euphrates. So there seems to be a connection to the Euphrates, which would geographically locate that area to, to Babylon again. And uh, again, just because we don't see it on the scene of history now doesn't mean it won't be. Um, but again, Babylon, here's the way I want to... Remember oftentimes when we talk about biblical prophecy, we talk about the near and the far. So, like, for instance, when Isaiah writes about God's judgment in Isaiah 13, he's talking about judgments that happened in his day, but they also represent the greater day of the Lord that happens still in our future. Well, in the same way, you have literal things like Babylon will literally be rebuilt as a city, but it also, at the same time, without diminishing the literalness of the city, represents something greater. And the representation is the rebellion against God. That's exactly what Bob was talking about last week. God had instituted government. And if one government gets out of control, all of the other governments will attack it. But remember in Genesis, you have the whole world trying to gain access to God by their own works, their own power. In fact, they'll make a name for themselves. Rather than glorifying God, they're going to glorify themselves. Now, the tower that they build is literal, okay? But it represents something. So it's not either or. It's not, oh, we take it literally or symbolic. It's both and. Does that make sense? What's very interesting is the tower that they build, Babel, in, in Hebrew when you read it, it's Babel. It, there's a, a B, but the, the Hebrews pronounce it with a V. Unless there's a certain mark in there, then you go B. But it's literally Babel. What's very interesting is when you read Babylon all the way through your Bible, in the old, if, take any passage you look at in your Old Testament and it reads Babylon, it's actually Babel. So the Tower of Babel, that's na- that name is used for Babylon. So there's no distinction between the Tower of Babel and Babylon when you read it in Hebrew. So all the way through, you're designed, it's designed so that you see the connection that what happened at Babel, this rebellion against God and his authority, is what Babylon represents. It's what it's all about. So in Revelation 13, God says, Babylon, I've thrown down. And sure enough, the Medo-Persians destroyed it and sacked it in 539 B.C. And he's saying, that's a down payment for what I'm going to do in the future. And so I think it's literally going to be rebuilt, but it also represents something. So again, I don't think we have to choose between either or. 
Now, some will claim that it's Jerusalem, and they make a compelling case only because oftentimes God says, my people in Jerusalem are acting no different than Babylon. And it's used Babylon as a pejorative against the people of Israel who acting, are acting no differently. But when you look at the evidence, I think, in the book of Revelation, clearly it's located by the Euphrates. And so I think it'll be literal, but it also symbolizes something. So I, I hope that helps. Yep. In fact, I'll show you if we have time. And when I get to the end, I'm going to show you an amazing passage from Isaiah that shows us what this battle is all about. So very good question. Thank you. Okay, well, you know, for the sake of time, let's keep going. Now, I want to show you that we have these many antichrists that come about. And I want you to see here in Revelation 17, verse 17, something very important. In fact, before I put that up, let me just mention this. In this passage that we're looking at, I think we can see three important theological truths. Okay, now here's what I want you to think about. One important theological truth that we can learn is that God has two different wills, or we can break his will into two different ways. That is, God has a decreative will, whereby when he decrees something that will come about, if it's his will that the Antichrist would be given power, it happens. Okay, if he decrees that his son would be put to death for the sake of sins, it happens. That's God's decreative will. But when we talk about his moral will, his moral will often is now thwarted. For example, God says that it's immoral, it's against his will to murder or to commit adultery, etc. Does that still not yet happen in our world? Sure it does. So God's moral will is often violated, but God's decretive will never is. And I want to show you this passage because when we think about Antichrist, it's God's desire that he would come about, but woe to those who align themselves with it. Those who align themselves with Antichrist are violating God's moral will while they're fulfilling his decretive will. And that's what we see here in Revelation 17, 17. It says, For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. So notice here, God's decretive will is being brought about. God is the one who put it in their hearts to do this, right? And yet, what are they doing? They're doing evil things. They're giving their kingdom to the beast. Instead of worshiping Christ, they're going to worship and serve Antichrist. And so they're violating the moral law of God while they're fulfilling his decretive will, all right? Um, We see the same thing. Remember, Bob had taught us in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was handed over by the foreordained, predetermined plan of God, and he was put on the cross. But, but Peter says, but you nailed him to the cross. So the people were culpable for violating God's moral will, but God was bringing about his decreative will. Now, why is this important? Because it shows us that when these things are happening by men, some say, well, that's just the wrath of man, so it can't, this can't be the wrath of God when the Antichrist and these nations start rising up in the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Well, no, it is God's wrath. He uses the nations for his purposes. He's the one who has decreed this from the throne room. And so it is his wrath. The second thing that I think we can conclude from this is that there is a one in the many. And I'm going to focus this on this in the next slide. But there's many who are lined up with the one Antichrist. So think of this idea. You have one Christ and then you have the many. Okay, so for example, in Hosea 11.1, 1, God says, out of Egypt I called my son. 
Now, what son was taken out of Egypt? It was Israel. It was the many. If you lose the many in Egypt, what have you lost? The one. Because Christ comes from the Jews. Okay, so, so much so, so important is this concept that in Matthew 2, when Jesus is spared, remember he goes down to Egypt? Matthew cites Hosea 11.1. 1. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. But isn't it interesting that when Matthew cites that, it's not when Je- he's not citing it when Jesus is coming up out of Egypt. It's actually when he's going down into Egypt when you're reading the narrative. Because the focus isn't whether you're coming into Egypt or going out of Egypt. The focal point is the sun. If you lose Israel in Egypt, you've lost the sun. And if you lose Jesus to Herod in the New Testament, you've lost the sun. So the many, the Israelites, are going to bear the one son. And the one son is going to provide salvation for the many. So there's this one and many concept. And so, for example... When God promises in Genesis 13, he says, Abraham, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. He says, to all of this land, I give it from the river Euphrates. By the way, that's the extent of the border. And then he gives the limitations of the borders. He says, to all this land, I give it to your seed. Remember, now the term is Zerah. And you and I are saying, well, wait a minute. Is it the one that he's giving it to or is it the many? And the answer is yes. The one is going to provide salvation so that the many enjoy it. And that's why Paul says originally the promise was applied to the one. Now, the reason I'm laboring this is when you get to Antichrist, he has his one and the many. Okay, the many are going to give their allegiance to this one so he has power. But the many are those who dwell upon the earth. They're unbelievers. So they're counterfeiting everything that God has. And this is the battle then between Satan's seed and the seed of the woman that we go back to and see in Genesis 3.15. Okay, as a counterfeit of everything. Yeah, Dan. I was wondering, on, on that uh, Revelation 17.17 17, where it says, God, for God has put it in their hearts. Yeah. That's, is it more of a, like, passive, he's, he's letting them do what they would naturally do? I, I think of the doctrine of election where, sure. where we, those who are elected will will do what's honoring to God, not because of what's inside of them. It's because of what God has chosen us to do that. Yeah. But in this case, he's basically leaving people to their own desires. Yeah, very good. So, Uh, yeah, let's make the distinction then between... um, It's a great question. The distinction is between how God interacts with the elect and the reprobate. Okay, so let's think about that. So the elect are those that are chosen for salvation... The elect, as it were, are those, if you will, are chosen not to have salvation or for damnation, but God works differently in them. So, for example, when it comes to God's elect, those whom he saves, he's hands-on. Because in our natural state, in our depravity, there's none who seek him, no, not one. So what does he have to do because we have this unregenerate state? Well, he goes hands-on and he has to regenerate us by the power of the Spirit. But for the unregenerate, he's really hands-off. And so all he has to do to give them, to put something in their hearts is to let them be who they are. Okay, so he lets them to their own devices. Yeah, and we see, like, for example, even in uh, Matthew 13, 11, the similar idea. But the idea here, here's what I want you to think about. 
how does he put it in their hearts, some evil thing? We know, for example, in uh, James 1, 13 through 14, he says, let no one say that when they're tempted, they're being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil, but we're led away by our own lusts and our own sins. So the point is, if we put that data together, this is a, when he says he has put it in their hearts, all he has to do to put this evil in their hearts is let them be who they are. Well, it would be like saying, well, God measured out the, the uh, universe by the span of his hand. Now, you and I say, well, wait a minute. God doesn't literally have a hand. He's spirit. So it's like an anthropomorphism. It's a figure of speech so that you and I can say, oh, yeah, he's ultimately in control of it. But when we start distinguishing between who is the one who is doing the evil, God isn't doing the evil. It's the person. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, and so God could have intervened on their behalf, and he could have, uh, like let's say in Revelation 17, 17, where I have it underlined, God could have put it in their hearts to repent, right? And there we would know that he's actively regenerating those who are unregenerate. All I'm saying is for the unregenerate to perish and to have in their hearts to want to worship the beast, he just simply lets them be who they are. Does that make sense? Now, he's in control, so he can use this act of voice, but that's all he has to do. And the same thing, by the way, you see with Pharaoh. Pharaoh already has a hardened heart. And so God hardens his heart, but he's not hardening a Pharaoh's heart that's soft and wants to come to Yahweh. He's actually hardening. Oh, I'm sorry. Bob's got something. He's hardening somebody who's already unregenerate. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> if we go to Romans 1, we see more detail about how reprobation works. Oh, good, good. Okay, if you go to Romans 1, it says, because they did not see fit oh, yeah, to acknowledge, acknowledge God, God, Yes, God gave them over there you go. to a reprobate mind. So the first go. thing that happened was they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. Yeah, amen. The judgment of reprobation is when, rather than fighting against what they want, God gives them what they want. Exactly, and that's what we see here. Yeah, and so God's grace and mercy is God not giving us what we want. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But giving us graciously a desire to love him and others. Right, right. So we need to give him the glory. And uh, so if you want more detail about the process... I'd study Romans 1. Very good. And we'll be coming to that study, yes. Yeah, we Eric's going to preach through Romans. Yeah, and, Steve, and does we'll, that help? We'll get a better look at it. Okay, okay. Okay, well, we'll, come, we'll, we'll, we'll talk after and we'll come back we're, to it. We're too. sinners <laughs> from birth as well, so it's already That's right. put in That's our right. Hearts. Yep, exactly right. Yep, well said. Well, let's see now. we got 10 minutes. Um, oh, the third thing I want to point out is that all of the nations, now remember the nations are going to be giving allegiance to the Antichrist. We have to remember that this isn't, as I mentioned earlier, the wrath of man. It's the wrath of God. Okay, now let me show you evidence of that from the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Isaiah 10, 5 through 7. I want to show you a precedent, as it were, for God using the nations as the instruments of his wrath. And so that's exactly what he's doing in the opening seal judgments. So... Before we read, think of the logic. If we are spared from the time of wrath, 
And as God uses the nations and their instruments of his wrath, we have to be spared, therefore, from the beginning of what's happening in Revelation chapter 6. So that's what I'm trying to show you is that it's absurd to say, well, what's happening in Revelation chapter 6 is just the wrath of man, but it's not the wrath of God. Well, that would be news to God because he uses the nations and Antichrist for his purposes. We just read that in Revelation 17. So let's see the Old Testament reference to this. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Now the term indignation there can be rendered his wrath. So notice Assyria is described as his instrument of anger and wrath. Why? Because he used Assyria to bring upon Samaria. He destroyed the ten northern tribes in 722. And he also used them to put Judah in line and threaten them as Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem. Okay? Now notice he goes on in verse 6. He says, I send it against a godless nation. Who's that godless nation that he's referring to? He's referring to Israel. He says, I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury. Who is the object of his fury, his people? It's Israel. And he says, to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor, now he's talking about Assyria, their intention, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy, to cut off many nations. So isn't it interesting here, Assyria is violating God's moral law. But again, it's fulfilling his decreative law or his decreative will, okay? But here clearly you see a precedent where God used the nations in the Old Testament, even a wicked nation like Assyria, for his wrath. So why all of a sudden would we object to God using the nations who give allegiance to the Antichrist as instruments of his wrath in the New Testament? Especially when he says that's what he's doing in Revelation 17. So those who make a distinction between the wrath of man and the wrath of God in Revelation chapter 6, I just don't think have a biblical case, okay? And yet that's what I think post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, all those views have to do that. They say these are the things of the wrath of man, but they're not the wrath of God. I just don't think it washes biblically, okay? All right, now let's keep moving. Let's talk about the rebellion and how this helps us understand. Sorry, I'm ducking. We've got these festive flags up. I'm just trying to see the time. It's Norm's birthday. <laughs> Excellent. Happy birthday, Norm. <laughs> are you serious or are you just, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I knew that they weren't up for you, but I thought maybe. <laughs> Way to come in with a bang here. To, uh, all right. <laughs> um, I, by the way, um, the only th- reason I want you to see 2 Thessalonians 2.3, remember we looked at this verse last week, and I want you to think about how these many nations giving allegiance to the Antichrist may help us understand this idea of the rebellion. Okay? So let's read that again. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Now remember last week I had proven that the supplied apotesis, remember we have to supply that as an English translator. I'm just citing the ESV. But the logic is literally, for that day is not here. And that's what we proved last time. So for the day is not here unless what? The rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So notice this rebellion then isn't just the Antichrist coming, but it's this coalition, that's what we're reading about, that gives their allegiance to the Antichrist. And so the rebellion isn't... So the term rebellion there is apostasy. Okay, so the reason we want to think about this is some will say, well, this is the apostasy that's occurring within the church. I don't think that that's a good reading. Because in the context here, what's being described isn't believers. 
because this is within the 70th week of Daniel. All you have is unbelievers. So the unbelievers are going to rebel against God's rule by basically rejecting government and giving all their allegiance to one man. And in fact, Gordon Fee, I'm not the only one. It's not just me that says this. Look at Gordon Fee. He writes a commentary on this passage. He says, quote, In secular Greek, in fact, the word apostasia that we have translated here, rebellion, was used to refer to a political or military revolt, not in the sense of falling away from a position once held, but of a rebellion against a power or deity to whom one was not committed. So this isn't the act of apostasy of believers, or true believers won't apostatize, but it really is the world giving their allegiance to the Antichrist. And that's what we're seeing here with a rider on the white horse. It seems to jive very nicely. By the way, notice that the man of lawlessness here, the Antichrist, is called the son of destruction. And when you see that construct in the Bible, the son of whatever, the, it means that they're characterized by. So this one is characterized not by blessing, not by bringing salvation, but by destruction. Apollea is the term. Now, it's very interesting is there's a passage where we see that all unbelievers are the children of destruction. Okay, now again, I want you to see this connection between Christ the one and the many who are believers and the Antichrist the one and the many who are unbelievers, this idea of the one and the many. Notice here what it says in Isaiah 57. God is describing the unregenerate in his day. Verses 1 through 5, he says, The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? At the end of the day, it's Yahweh, isn't it? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines? So the son of destruction is the Antichrist, but here you have children, and the term in the Septuagint is the same one of Apollea. It's the children of destruction. And so the children of destruction in the 70th week of Daniel are going to go give their allegiance to the son of destruction. So what we see, if we go back to Genesis 3, there's a promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, but there's going to be warfare or enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So there's a battle between the one and the many of Christ and the one and the many of Antichrist. And so I want you to see that connection, right? The many are giving their allegiance to the one man of lawlessness. In fact, that same idea of lawlessness is used for Judas. He was the son of perdition, the son of destruction, who had denied Jesus and had betrayed him. We see that in John 17, 12. Now, one thing I want to just point out, because we're out of time, we might as well stop here. But notice he talks about the sons or the children of destruction, of rebellion. Notice he says, who inflame yourselves among the oaks and every luxuriant tree. Well, the oak tree was part of this cult that the Canaanites had. It was to give fertility. It was to be life-giving. But notice the next cult that he talks about is the cult of Moloch. They slaughter their children in the ravines. And so isn't it interesting whether it comes to life or death, 
these pagans who are children of destruction, they find life and death and all the meaning in between associated not with Yahweh, but with the demonic realm, with some other deity. And so that's going to play out then in the 70th week of Daniel. When the Antichrist comes, the sons and daughters, the children of rebellion, are willingly going to give him their allegiance. And so that's what this is all about. Uh, The big picture, we can probably wrap this. Well, you know what? I think I've got time. I can wrap this up very quickly. Let me run through this with you. The big picture, Christ brings a new redeemed humanity to the new Jerusalem all by his grace. The Antichrist brings an old unredeemed humanity to build Babylon by works. And so what Revelation is reminding us is that Babylon will be thrown down, and it happens through the wrath of God as we're seeing initiated in Revelation 6. Revelation 18, 9 through 10, I'm just showing you the destruction of the city of Babylon. It says, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, that's with Babylon, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for one hour your judgment has come. Babylon will be thrown down. And the strong city, the city of Christ, the new Jerusalem will last forever. So real quick, I'll leave you with this. There's what we call a chiasm in Isaiah 24 through 27. I want you to see this because this is called the little apocalypse in Isaiah. And one of the major themes in the book of Isaiah is this contrast between the two cities. The strong city, which is Zion, Jerusalem, and the weak city of chaos, which is Babylon. And so as we look at Revelation 6, that's what Antichrist is going to bring. He's going to bring the city of chaos, Babylon. All right, so let me just show you this chiasm. Isaiah 24, 1 through 13, you see the Lord's harvest from a destroyed world. You see a song of the world's remnant. That means believers from the Gentile world. You have the sinful world overthrown. You have the waiting world for this messianic age. Then you have a song of the ruined city. This is the city of chaos that's mentioned in Isaiah 24, 10. That's Babylon. And all of a sudden, the people of God are brought to Mount Zion where there's salvation with their God. And then the focus is on the Israelites. They live in the strong city that is believers. And then you have the waiting people of God. And then you have these spiritual forces overthrown. You have a song of the remnant of the people. And you have the Lord's harvest from a destroyed people. Now, the focus in this chiasm is obviously on Mount Zion. And what you and I are intended to see is this contrast between the ruined city, Babylon, and the strong city, which is Mount Zion, that lasts forever. And so as we open up to Revelation chapter 6, this is beginning. The world is being given over, the unregenerate, to want to live for the ruined city. But what God is saying is that through his wrath, he's going to bring the strong city, Mount Zion, that lasts forever. Very interesting in this chiasm, What you have in the opening part is the Gentile world is brought to Mount Zion, whereas then from verse 12, or actually chapter 26 on, the focus is on the Israelites who are believers who have been there. And so the whole world, whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you're a believer, you're going to be brought to Mount Zion. But the rest of the world who doesn't believe in Yahweh, they're going to be partakers in the ruined city. So here's the the, the takeaway for me, is at the end of the day when I sin during the day, When I sin, what I'm really saying is I'm living for the ruined city. That's what you're living for when you sin. 
And when you and I are able to overcome temptation, it's why? Because we believe the promises of God. I'm saying I'm living for the strong city. So this week, as you go about your daily life, think about in your own life what city you're living for. That's how it impacts our life to say, you know what? I believe the promises of God. I'm going to forsake in whatever the sin is. I'm not living for the city that's being brought down. I'm living for the eternal city, Mount Zion. That's what the battle's all about. Yeah, amen. So with that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. I thank you, Lord, that you will throw down Babylon. And I thank you, Lord, that your will would be brought even through the instruments of your wrath like these wicked nations and antichrist. We know you're in control. So Heavenly Father, we do pray for those that don't know you. We pray for loved ones. We pray for coworkers and friends. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would save them. Uh, Put the gospel upon our lips. Give us opportunity to proclaim that salvation and the uh, inheritance in the strong city that all comes through you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.